from the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution, welcome to CHQ&A, Chautauqua's flagship podcast. I'm Jordan Steves. At CHQ&A, we continue conversations that begin on stages and porches across the Chautauqua grounds with celebrated individuals who pass through our gates this summer. On today's episode, we feature a conversation with author and professor Ralph Young, an expert on dissent and protest movements. As a history professor at Temple University, Ralph has taught the courses Dissent in America, Recent U.S. History, and Trials in America, as well as a popular weekly discussion forum called the Dissent in America Teach-Ins. Ralph's books include Dissent in America, The Voices That Shaped a Nation, Make Art, Not War, Political Protest Posters from the 20th Century, and, most recently, Dissent, The History of an American Idea. Ralph spoke to guest interviewer John Marino following his July 23rd amphitheater lecture, which opened Chautauqua's week on the ethics of dissent. Here's that conversation. Joining us in the Cohen Multimedia Studio today is Dr. Ralph Young, professor of history at Temple University. I'm John Marino, and I want to thank you for joining us on Chautauqua Q&A, and uh, welcome. Yep, thank you for having me. Well, you're claim to fame in a way, I guess, is this wonderful book that I've managed to read some excerpts of mm-hmm. uh, over the past few days, uh, Descent, the History of an American Idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to—I I would like it if maybe you started off just kind of giving us your thumbnail definition of what dissent is or what it means to you. Yeah. Well, dissent, you know, there's you know, I try to deal with the, the definition of dissent in the introduction of the book, and that winds up being like 15, 20 pages long. But dissent on the, the most simple way is just going against the grain. You know, protesting, dissenting against what is. You know, dissenting against the powers that be. Um, but dissent is kind of, you know, much more nuanced than that as well. There's kind of, and there's all different sorts of dissent, religious dissent, political dissent, economic dissent, cultural dissent. And uh, all of this has kind of woven its way all through American history. One of the main theses that I have in the book is that dissent is central to American history, that we were born out of dissent and we have kind of evolved through dissent movements. Um, you know, during the colonial period, uh, you know, religious dissenters settled in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. Uh, political dissenters arose in a big way in the 18th century and this of course led to the American Revolution and then putting into the First Amendment the right to dissent and Americans have protested ever since. You know, women fought to get the right to vote. Abolitionists fought against slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, every war in our history has had its, uh, you know, opponents. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of a central feature that has gone all through American history. Is it is it always about empowering the disempowered? Generally speaking, I would say that a good, you know, a majority of the dissent has been uh, a sp- espoused by the disempowered to get power, you know, to get uh, part of what is sort of promised to us in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And as I mentioned at the Chautauqua uh, lecture yesterday, um, one of the 
things that so many dissenters consider is that the contra- the Constitution and the Declaration are like contracts. The government has promised these things, and so many dis- people who have felt that they have been left out of this American vision are, you know, putting America's feet to the fire. Hey, like all men are created equal, but we're not being treated equally, and we need to fight for our rights. And so a lot of dissent has been like that. But there has been other dissent that is really not from any kind of point of view like that. I mean, you might have like with environmental dissenters and such, they're trying to get laws changed, but uh, they they don't have like the personal uh, connection to it the way a a member of the gay community or an African-American might have to their Mm -hmm. basic rights groups. But there have been has been dissent from the right, which is like with the uh, Ku Klux Klan and other right wing organizations that are trying to roll back the clock or trying to limit the advances that other people have had. You know, I'd like to follow that just for a second, and not so much about the Klan as the ten-year effort that the Republican and conservative parties in the United States took to figure out at the state level how to then gerrymander congressional districts so mm-hmm. that they took over Congress. And you know, my sense of it, and as I as I watched a couple of your lectures online and read a number of things that uh, mm-hmm. uh, that were there by you, um, it kind of struck me that it was almost a level of dissent, but it was dissent in their fear for the future yes, as opposed to mm-hmm. the what is because they saw where it was headed and they wanted yeah. to figure out how to stem that tide. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. And that, of course, is, you know, so much of the uh, stuff that's going on today, like the anti-immigration feeling, the kind of uh, backlash against civil rights with, you know, uh, you know, people you know with the mass incarceration issue with the need for black lives matter to come in existence because of you know the shooting of unarmed black men by police and others uh so much of this is based on the fear that a lot of people have that demographically things are changing drastically in this country and you know in another 50 years you know, English might not even be the dominant language. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and so there are a lot of people, a lot of people are, are, are welcoming that. They're fine with the changes. But a lot of people are very much afraid that this is going to change everything that they've believed and felt about themselves and about the United States. And I think, you know, a lot of this, what you were mentioning about the gerrymandering and all this is an attempt to stem off the tide or to try to delay that, inevitable day as far as possible well, and the changes are inevitable i think I, yeah. it's it's pretty yeah. unrealistic to think that it isn't going to happen exactly. this century i mean yeah yeah exactly and i think that's you know a lot of the and, and of course uh president trump you know really kind of tapped into that feeling and during the whole campaign well i was going to ask about that as well um you know when we talk about kind of fighting against the majority or fighting against those in charge and that's kind of central to a root definition i guess of dissent mm-hmm. um in that individuals um gather together when they feel that this, that the people that are in charge are not giving them their due in whatever way uh, whether we talk about social issues mm-hmm. or political issues or environmental issues it, mm-hmm. it doesn't make too much difference i would suppose mm-hmm. Are people still doing that when the majority of the population 
did not vote for President Trump, for example. Mm -hmm. So we have things like the Electoral College, which mm -hmm. allowed him under our system of government to be put in to power in the mm -hmm. White House, mm -hmm. which is transitioning every established governmental norm that we thought we were operating under for mm -hmm. the past 40 or 50 years mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you then rebel when you're already in the majority, but you don't have control? Or how do you dissent when you're not in the majority, or when you are in the majority, but you don't really have control of the institutions that are governing you? Mm -hmm. Well, there's, you know, there's these kind of vast um, kind of grassroots efforts to try to change that. Uh, ever since the election, there have been these groups like Indivisible, for example, which has got like 6,000 chapters all over the country and just in every state and just about every city in which they're actually trying to take a page out of the Tea Party's uh, playbook. Uh, which protested very strongly against Obamacare and mm -hmm. all of that when Obama was president. And they're trying to do these things like going to town hall meetings of representatives and basically challenging them about, uh, like last year when they had the vote on the health care, you know, you know, doing away with the health care plan or... Uh, or just so many of the other things that are going on right now. And so people are trying very hard from that grassroots level to try to change things. But it's very difficult when you're, when you are a dissenter, you, when you are on the outside, even when you are in, the, uh, in a majority, to try to get the people who have power to listen, much less do anything about what it is that you are arguing for. And, you know, when dissent movements have been successful in the past, for example, you know, to a large extent, the civil rights movement was pretty successful. Uh, that needed people on the outside basically banging on the doors, but you needed somebody on the inside listening. And that was like perfectly, uh, we have a perfect example of that with when Johnson was president. And, you know, he was listening to the civil rights movement. And in fact, that very famous speech he gave when he was introducing the Voting Rights Act to Congress in 1965. And he made the comment on national television, he said that, you know, it's not just a question of changing laws, you know, to get things done in this country. It's also a question of changing our attitudes. And he said, each of us has to look into our own hearts and examine, you know, the prejudice and the bigotry that we might have. And it's, it's difficult to overcome this legacy of decades, more than a century of, you know, racial bigotry. Sure. And then he looked directly into the camera and said, but we shall overcome. And at that moment, people like Martin Luther King and others in the civil rights movement knew that somebody with power was listening to their message. And that's when things really began to move in, in a very progressive way as far as the civil rights movement was concerned with the introduction and passage and signing of the Voting Rights Act, which, to kind of circle back to what you started with, is something that the Supreme Court has basically eviscerated. Right in the last few years and right. there is this big backlash to all of those advances that have happened is is dissent more affiliated with liberal causes or socially relevant causes as opposed to conservative efforts uh well i think it's on on both sides i think that probably most dissent in our history has come from the left because of people being disenfranchised or disempowered and trying to get the right to vote or whether it was women or blacks in the South fighting against the uh, 
literacy tests and the poll taxes and all that. Uh, but there has been, you know, a large amount of dissent from the right. But a lot of that has to do with, again, fear of the changing society that we have. And it's kind of the nature of American history, even, that we, you know, we are a nation of immigrants. We've always been very diverse. And that diversity is increasing all the time. And so you do have, uh, as we said earlier, people that are afraid of those changes. Uh, but you also have, like, for example, on the right, you have, um, you know, the anti-abortion movement. You had uh, the back 100 years ago, the prohibition movement. So you have had dissent coming from, you know, both wings, as it were, uh, you know, in throughout our history. Is dissent typically rooted in fear, do you think? No, I think there's a lot of it is is rooted in hope too. You know, as as far as people, uh, you know, fighting to get something done, I think, for example, like take one of these this recent one, the um, uh, the what is the name of the group? The, you know, the students from that school in Florida that started. The, oh, right, 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 right. Uh, the high school in Florida, right, yes, where the shootings right. took place, and they started this movement, uh -huh. and and of course. I, when you ever you read anything about them, where they're, they're you know uh, fighting for their own lives, it's um, there is a sense of there is a sense of fear in that you know we don't want to be gunned down in our classrooms, but there's also a sense of hope that they have. I think they're feeling that you know if they get enough people together and they really push and don't give up, they can get something done. So it's kind of a combination of both hope and fear. I think if you didn't have hope, you maybe wouldn't even bother to dissent. So there's a degree of idealism, do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. I, I guess uh, uh, de Tocqueville warned about the tyranny of the majority in an American democracy, right? And we chatted just a second mm -hmm. ago a little bit about that. Yeah. But the majority is no longer in charge. So mm -hmm. does that still apply? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, the, the founding fathers were afraid of the mobocracy, you know, and that's why they put the Electoral College into the Constitution. They felt that, uh, the, you know, the masses of people are really not well enough informed to make such a decision as to choose a president. And so they would choose the electors who would be presumably more educated and understand things better so they could override the people if necessary. But here we have a situation where this kind of populist demagoguery has kind of taken hold in the United States. And, you know, one could think, and of course the Electoral College did not override uh, in, insofar as, uh, you know, the states that just barely, you know, had enough votes to go for one way or the other. And, and they, you know, uh, didn't try to override the will of the people even though the will of the people nationally was a majority, was against Mr. Trump. Um, it's, uh, I think we have to say that, you know, that it's, it's a question that we kind of really need to explore. And uh, one of the things that enters into this also is the interference by Russia in the election, the, the false stories that were put, the all of these trolls, all of the stuff that was going on on Facebook and Twitter mm -hmm. had an impact on shaping people's opinion. And 
uh, one of the things that became very clear to me after the election is that those of us who are educators, we really need to work harder on getting people more informed, not only about American history and how things have developed over the years and to become historically literate, but also to distinguish how to evaluate and judge the information. You know, one of the things when you work on a PhD in history, you're learning all the time about the validity of sources. And you might have, you know, an eyewitness source about some event, but that person has kind of his own views about it. And so you have to kind of take into consideration, this is an eyewitness account, but it's also somewhat tainted by somebody's personal views. And these are the kinds of, of the things that historians have to do in their research. And it's almost like every... American needs to have this basic skill when you're reading an article in a newspaper or online to kind of sift through the way statements are written to kind of find the underlying prejudice or bias that's in the story or to even decide how you distinguish uh, you know, facts from fictitious manipulation of mm -hmm. these facts. Well, we're not taught... To critically think anymore right well this is uh, <coughs> one of the important things about uh, you know any kind of an education one of the first things people need to learn to do is critical thinking but then also critical reading are we more divided today do you think uh, in our in our descents from both the left and the right or have there been periods throughout our history where it was just as dynamic it's just that we didn't have the technology to communicate it as mm -hmm. quickly or as broadly yeah and of course with the civil war that was even worse of course you know that really did break down into a war in which 600,000 people were killed um, yes but you're you know, I see what you're saying is that you know the technology today exacerbates the issue and I think it also makes it appear that Americans are more divided than we really are. I think that if you go out into the heartland someplace and you're talking with somebody who has maybe very conservative views, uh, and if, say, you're kind of a liberal or a progressive from some city, if both people would sit there and just listen to each other and not kind of think of the other as the enemy, if they just listen to each other, they would probably find that their views are not really that far apart and their aspirations and their hopes and what they want to do in their lives are probably not that far apart. We're being steered, though, don't you think, to some degree? I mean, we're, um, you know, both sides, I, <clears throat> both yes. sides, I think, are being kind of put in yeah. categories and you're expected to play that role. And unfortunately, yeah. I think people that are not... Um, as well read as perhaps they should be or mm -hmm. not as critical thinking as perhaps they should mm -hmm. be, find it real easy just to fall into those niches and yeah. become those kind of caricatures of those roles. Yes, it's very easy. It's You, you can be very lazy and just get, um, you know, accept what you hear like uh, in a online or a Twitter feed or you see on a Facebook thing without, um, you know, looking you know, kind of trying to inform yourself about things. Like, for example, after September 11th, so many Americans were saying, you know, why did they do this? Well, all you need to do is start reading in-depth histories about American foreign policy in the Middle East, and you can see lots of reasons why uh, people hated us enough to do what they did. And most Americans, I think, 
you know, I think it's a real problem today that people don't like reading as much. Uh, they have such short attention, attention spans. They want to get a little soundbite from CNN or Fox News. And that kind of shapes the way they're thinking. And they're not, like, examining the issue. And, you know, for almost any issue that is out there, you, there's a lot of complexity to it. It's not just a black or white issue and you need to kind of look into it and then develop your own way of thinking about it and, and figure out uh, how this fits in with the way you live your life and how, you know, what is real and what is mythology here. Do you think that uh, things like the Wall Street movement and Black Lives Matter, um, the technology has impacted them in a way that people aren't as their sensibilities aren't as deep as they might have been when we were yeah. talking earlier, when you and I were young, about mm -hmm. what they are really concerned about. It's yeah. almost uh, surface yeah. Yeah. to Every some degree, and they react <clears throat> to that. Everything has become so superficial in our society, and it's, you know, you, you get a little bit of, you know, what's that old expression, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, because you need to have kind of in-depth knowledge about things. And, you know, like with the Internet, and uh, someone asked this yesterday during the after the at the Q and A part of my talk about the impact that the internet has had, and I think you know it's it's both positive and negative. On the internet, you can see you know people you know dissenters can post things. Hey, we're going to have a demonstration on Friday at this time. You know, be there, and it, and and you can you know can spontaneously have like a flash demonstration someplace right. and people can all arrive and all that. So that's something where people can get the message out and all and, you know, gather people to join the cause cause. But at the same time, there's a lot of bogus stuff out there and it can, you know, get people to get involved in things that they really shouldn't be getting involved in. They would think about it. And then another thing uh, it kind of emphasizes that superficiality that we were just talking about, like, you know, click here uh, uh, to like this cause or to sign this petition. And uh, it's what I call, you know, it's clicktivism or slacktivism. People can think that they have participated in some movement by just clicking something on the Internet. And that's not the same kind of commitment that we had back in the 60s sure. of going to Birmingham and or taking a freedom ride down into Georgia or Mississippi uh, where you might get your head bashed in by Klansmen and, and the local people down there. So that takes a lot different kind of commitment than just clicking on something on the Internet. And I think it's can create you know, a very powerful movement when people do have that physical commitment to it as well as just the, yeah, I like that thing. If you're just joining us, we're recording in the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the grounds of the Chautauqua Institution. I'm John Marino, and my guest today is Dr. Ralph Young, professor of history at Temple, Temple University and uh, author of Descent, the History of an American Idea. You know, you're incredibly soft-spoken, which is wonderful. Um, did, does that demeanor about you influence what dissent means to you? I noticed in a number of um, reviews that I saw online of your book and mm -hmm. a number of pieces of commentary and some lectures that you've given, you 
often emphasize that the nonviolent dissent has far more value than the mm-hmm. violent dissent, although there are those that would argue, uh, well, and I know they did back in the 60s, the weathermen felt they had to do what they were doing while yeah. they were peaceful mm-hmm. protests against the war in Vietnam, mm-hmm. for example. Um, yeah. Has it influenced your your sense of what dissent is? Well, I don't, I don't think it's influenced my sense of what dissent is, but I, you know, I certainly think that the most powerful dissent is the nonviolent, is the peaceful, where people, you know, like Gandhi in India or Martin Luther King in the South, where people are willing to be beaten up and not fight back. And that really, you know, when people are watching this, like newsreel footage of that or television coverage, it affects people, you know, when you're seeing somebody getting beaten up for a cause. If you see two groups of people just fighting with each other, then they think, oh, it's a mob action. You know, it, you know people don't, they, they don't like either side then. But this way you gain more converts to your side. Um, Martin Luther King once said, you know, something like, you know, violence doesn't destroy hate. You know, hatred, you, you don't destroy hate by hating it. Uh, the only way to do it is through love. It's like darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can drive out darkness. And I think this is really very important and very essential, and that most dissent movements that are successful do practice nonviolence. Now, with that said, uh, one of the most successful dissent movements in our history was the American Revolution. Which was hardly nonviolent. Which was very violent. And so obviously there is a place for that. And I try, you know, in my classes, get my students discussing, you know, the pros and cons of violent dissent and nonviolent dissent. Uh, John Brown was very committed anti-slavery activist and committed violence to do that. And the violence at Harper's Ferry was one of the direct you know, one of the last nails in the coffin, so to speak, that led to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And which is what changed things. You know, like all the peaceful protests of abolitionists didn't end slavery. It was the Civil War that ended slavery. And so it's something that one can't give a categorical statement. You know, you should never use violence because some of the important events in American history have, have used that. Um, but usually, if you are out, say, on a demonstration, whether it's civil rights or an anti-war demonstration, if you commit acts of violence, usually that turns off people. So you're not really going to gain any converts. And what you're trying to do in a protest is to gain uh, you know, people to believe that your side is the right side. Are we at that stretch point now, do you think? Is the division so deep in the country? Uh, and, and I can't certainly blame it all on the current president. It, mm-hmm. We've historically kind of been moving in this direction, and I think as mm-hmm. people have gotten um, more within their, mm-hmm. and only affiliate with those who they can identify with specifically, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and there's there's seems to be less interaction and more affinity for people that share the same prejudices mm-hmm. you do, I guess would be yeah. a way to look at it. Well, I think, you know, most of us in America are prejudiced in some way or another about you know, a lot of different things. And I don't think Trump is the cause of the divisions. I think he's kind of a symptom of it. And you know, he really capitalized on it, and it's, he has exacerbated it. But the kind of, uh, you know, white supremacist rhetoric that came out of Charlottesville, that's been 
in America, you know, from day one. Sure. Uh, it's just been kind of held more under wraps. Uh, and in a sense, what's happened in recent years is that the wraps have been taken off. Well, if we don't, uh, if we have the legislation, and you mentioned President Johnson and the Voting Rights Act, and through that whole period, the things that were legislated, mm-hmm. but legislation doesn't change the hearts and minds. Right. And that's what Johnson was referring to in that speech about, you know, uh, we have to individually look into our own hearts. Uh, you know, you could you know, just, for example, like uh, the law banning alcohol, you know, the sure, 18th Amendment, yeah. you know. Well, what all that did was it turned just about every American into a lawbreaker, because everybody was you know drinking bootleg booze and all that. So, um, you know, it really it's something about what I would call sort of the the inner revolution. This is something back in the 1960s when I was a student. My friends and I would discuss this all the time, and I had some friends who were <clears throat> very strong Marxist types, and they're saying, well, we've got to change the system and the owners of the means of production and all that. Right. And I would argue that it's not just that. You've got to, you know, that's only just changing the names of the people in power, the names of the exploiters. You need to change something in your own heart, in your own consciousness. That you know, you have to look at yourself and say, you know, do I am I prejudiced against African Americans? You know, do I you know why do I walk over to the other side of the street when I see you know seven black teenagers walking towards me? You know, is that prejudice? We have to kind of look at ourselves and our own attitudes about things, and then kind of you know deal with that and get beyond that, and to look at the world with you know a much more open heart and. Um, and be aware of, you know, the suffering that people endure. And, you know, we all have things that we've suffered over. And we have to kind of understand that what's, you know, what's true for me is true for other people and that we have to to deal with that in, in a way. And, and so basically it's if you want to have a better world, you've got to work on your own consciousness. You can change, you, you can work to change yourself. Um, well, it's there much has easier to be a to, desire to do that, though. There has to be a desire to do and, that. And I don't know, and, and you can't legislate that. I mean, mm-hmm. we can, you know, the, the legislation gives us a structural framework for society to react to an injustice. Mm-hmm. So there's a structure that we can operate within. But, I, you know, I don't, I, I, I have friends, I will call them that because they've been friends since childhood, who are as ultra-conservative and mm. just think, you know, the sun just rises and sets on the current administration and this mm-hmm. is the most wonderful thing that happened to America and damn, they're not taking my country from me. Mm-hmm. Although when I say, who are they, I don't really get a clear definition. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the challenge of it. I guess, I guess you know, one of, the, one of the ways I looked at it is that we're really ruled by political tacticians these days. Mm-hmm. We're not so much mm-hmm. ruled by a democratic process that is, mm-hmm. you know, one man or woman, one vote. Right, we're right. we're ro- ruled by people that understand how to manage a system, yeah. and we kind of become yeah. chattel within that yeah, system yeah. to some degree. Yeah, we're we're manipulated a lot, and it's you know it's you know it's all to do you know it kind of if you think back to World War One, uh, there was a lot of anti-war sentiment. You know, like a, a large number of Americans had German relations. A large number had Irish. They didn't want to fight against Germany. Um, and what happened is the 
administration, the Wilson administration, set up the Committee on Information, which was basically a propaganda thing, kind of painting the Germans as evil ogres and the beast of Berlin and all of this, to try to manipulate American public opinion to join the war effort against Germany and in favor of England and France. When the war came to an end, all of those guys working in that uh, office were suddenly out of a job. And this gave rise in the 1920s to basically this idea that they had, well, we, what are we going to do now? Well, we sold the country on the idea of war. So if we did that, we should certainly be able to sell them a refrigerator. I, I was just thinking the same and thing. It sure. st- and it set up the Madison Avenue style right. of advertisement. And that has just, you know, it's huge now. I mean, it was like, a big thing already in the 20s, but, you know, it's exponentially uh, to the point where you watch a commercial on television and it's, you're being so manipulated with, you don't even know what the commercial is about usually till the end of it. And what they're trying to do is link a product with some value that people love and, and cherish. And like, for example, you know, the SUV ads, you know, basically they're trying to sell, link their product to the idea of freedom. You know, because with the SUVs, you can drive anywhere you want and all this. And um, every American loves freedom. So if they they create a commercial that does that effectively, they're going to sell more of their vehicle. Uh, even like Jeep calls one of their cars the Liberty. Right. You know, and so the, this whole idea of kind of kind trying to sell something through using American values. And this, of course, is now what's drives all the political ads that are going on and taps into people's fears and hopes and deepest seated, you know, uh, ideas of patriotism and the values of America. And you kind of don't even know anymore how you're being bantered about here and there by the way um, these commercials are being, you know, portrayed. I sometimes wish in political campaigns that simply... You know, every politician running should just simply state, this is what I'm in favor of. And let the people decide, well, am I in favor of this form of tax or, or this kind of policy about the environment or whatever, instead of like attacking the opponent as being the greatest traitor in American history because he believes differently than me. Right. And, um, you know, we, we just, there's so much chaff out there that we fail to find the wheat were we ever at a point like that where where we could where the politicians would just simply tell us what they believe and it was relatively clear-cut without it being i know even you you know know, lincoln and douglas uh, you know there was there were advertisements and slingers and flyers and name calling and yeah i'm just trying to think of a time but not as much as what's going on now it's uh I mean, the, uh, and, and of course, with it, the reason why it's so much more intense now is not only is it on television, but on the internet. And back in Lincoln and Douglas's days, it would be a newspaper article or a cartoon. Uh, and you'd read about it a week or two after the event had happened. So it was, you know, a very different kind of thing. And I think, uh, well, you know, with the Civil War, of course, people were calling in to question each other's patriotism and, uh, and labeling the other traitors and all of that. Um, but I think that, you know, it's something that is much, much worse today than it ever was. 
What, what role do you think education of our children, our grandchildren, um, mm. you know, so much of it is teach to the test. I know my, my wife is a college professor, and, mm. and I guess the question I would ask you is one that I hear her talk about, which is, you know, I get these young students that come in at 18, 19, 20 years old, and they've got, uh, they all say that they were part of the honor program in their high school, but if you don't give them just 50 simple questions mm -hmm. with the 50 simple answers they can memorize, they mm -hmm. wouldn't know how to get there if they had a roadmap to right. come to the conclusion. Are you finding that yourself? Yeah, to some extent. Um, at Temple University, uh, I teach quite a few courses in the honors program, and usually those students are pretty bright. They have good critical thinking skills and all that. And I would say, you know, maybe half of my other students have very good critical thinking skills. But that's one of the things that I'm supposed to be teaching them okay. at the college level. Now, and I know my, my wife teaches in elementary school, and they're working more and more on that at that level of trying to teach critical thinking and they're showing them pictures of immigrants at Ellis Island and getting them to look at the picture and you know come up with well what does this mean and what what you know is this a posed picture or is this something that is just capturing the, this immigrant family living in this uh, tenement house uh, you know what sort of ideas do you get from these pictures and what can you say about it and which is teaching critical thinking skills uh, I do know, I know so many teachers who really are very upset about this whole idea of teaching to the test because you're kind of, uh, it's trying to mold everybody into the same kind of, you know, cookie mold, as mm -hmm. it were. And, and, and some kids, they learn a bit later. Uh, you know, they, you know, they're slow learners. Some are fast learners. You've got to kind of challenge, channel education to, to fit them. And, um, you know, it's something that uh, we need to, you know, all think about. And, um, and it's not just also with the teachers. It's parents and grandparents need to uh, converse with their children and grandchildren in a way that encourages critical thinking and to, you know, to examine if you read something in the newspaper, don't just believe it because it was in print. You know, kind of think about how this article was written, the sources behind it. And of course, you know, with very young kids, you can't really do something like that. Sure. But you start sort them as early as you can. Mm -hmm. Was there a point in history where the concept of dissent just exponentially exploded above and beyond? You know, not that it was a simple argument, certainly, but the question of slavery at the Civil mm -hmm. War or the American Revolution and not wanting to mm -hmm. live under a king, for example. Yeah. There, are, there are different times when there's been more dissent, like, for example, during the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era in the 1890s, early 1900s. Uh, a lot of people got in, involved in the progressive movement. Chautauqua is actually something that yes. comes out of this whole period of time of right. trying to deal with the perils of industrialization and kind of emphasize, you know, good American values and things like lifelong learning and critical thinking and get people to examine the world in which they're living from a critical lens. Um, but so during that period of time in World War One, there was a lot of dissent. Uh, by the 1930s was another kind of period when you had people uh, on the right 
protesting against Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, calling him a socialist and all this, and people on the left criticizing him for not punishing the capitalists enough. Um, and and wanting them to stack the court so that they right. would all the decisions would go his way. Exactly. <coughs> but then you had, you know, like in the 50s, at first, you know, with the anti-communist hysteria and all that, I mean, there was some people dissenting against that, but, you know, people were very much conforming. So it was kind of a, almost like a little bit of a low point in dissent. And then uh, in the 60s, we had kind of everything kind of came together where, where people were beginning to believe, uh, you know, take Locke and Jefferson and Marx and Thoreau and all sorts of people and their philosophies very seriously. And you had a, you know, a huge wave of dissent. Sometimes I think of it as like the golden age of dissent. But then you had, by the 70s and 80s, kind of a backlash against that and things moving in a different direction. So I think dissent has come in waves throughout our, our history. Do the arts play a role? Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. Uh, one of the books I've done is called Make Art, Not War, which is a, a collection of political posters from, uh, uh, which is at the library at New, at New York University Press, uh, New York University. Um, and these are, you know, uh, posters of the labor movement, of the anti-war movement, you know, gay rights, women's movements, civil rights. Uh, and, you know, they are a very effective way of getting across a dissenting message. Uh, another thing is theater, uh, even street theater. You had the Bread and Puppet Theater back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, protest music has had a huge impact on getting a dissenting message out and getting people to listen to that dissenting message. Uh, comedy, too. Uh, the you know uh, people like Lenny Bruce and George Carlin, um, Mort Saul, Mort Saul, you know, yeah. saying things in a very humorous way, but they're getting people to think, hey, you know, there's a, a problem in our society. Like Lenny Bruce was once said, he he was famous for using every foul four letter word in the book, and I remember Steve Allen on a television show asked him, well, is there any words that offend you? And he says, yes, segregation, racism. Governor Faubus. Uh, so it's, you know, uh, so these kinds of things, you know, get people to think about, you know, the, an issue that's going on. So uh, the arts, you know, are definitely, you know, a very powerful way of uh, being a vehicle for getting a dissenting message out. Are they playing a, a large enough role today, do you think? Um, yeah, in certain to, circles, perhaps? To, in certain circles. Uh, you have, um, I mean, graffiti. Too, you know, like this guy Banksy, and, right, you know, right, other right. stuff, you know, you, and, and that's kind of perhaps one of the most democratic forms of art, and it's getting people to you know speak out and express their their views. Um, the internet is, you know, a lot of people they they create these memes or they have little videos or things that they post, um, but. What I find is kind of interesting also is that if you think about it, you know, back in the 60s, we didn't have social media, but the protest music was kind of acting in that way. That was, you know, whether it was 
uh, Phil Oakes or Bob Dylan or Arlo Guthrie. Their songs are being you know, recorded and played on radio all over the country, and it's getting an alternative message out that's different from what the mainstream media was getting out. And so, in a way, you know, things like Facebook and Twitter have kind of taken over some of that. Well, it gets back to your point earlier about, you know, you, you wish people would read more. And, you know, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about uh, back in that era, Ramparts magazine, for example, and yeah. those kinds of things which you would mm -hmm. actually look forward to getting in the mail and you would sit yep. there and you would read it. Yep. Yep. And yeah. you took the time to do it. Yeah, we, uh, we loved reading back then. <laughs> yeah, we seem to. Maybe yeah. maybe more than today, certainly more than today. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this may sound like an odd question, but do you have a sense of what the future of dissent is no <laughs> okay really. uh, but uh, you know i'm a historian we would but this history does deal with more than the past it deals with the present and the future and if you can understand the past and see how it has evolved and developed and influenced things that are happening today you can sort of see how extrapolate to a certain extent how things will evolve in the future now i don't know what the next big descent movement is going to be but i what i can say is i know there probably will be one and uh, descent will continue descent has been you know uh, influencing and evolving uh, creating an evolution within the united states since day one and i think it will continue to do so it won't necessarily always be taken to the streets, though, right? Because Not of technology. So there right. may be other ways for yeah. dissent to organize and yeah. react. Right. And, and dissenters have always used the latest technology. For example, with the Protestant Reformation, the Gutenberg Press had just been invented. Right. And so they were able to print Bibles and tracts and pamphlets and spread them out very quickly and easily and cheaply. In the... Um, with... Uh, the 1960s, with the development of stereo and hi-fi, uh, music became a really ma major form of getting out a dissenting message. And also video and, and all, you know, so many other ways of doing it. And, and now, of course, dissenters are using the Internet, the latest technology. Doctor, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Um, my guest today has been Dr. Ralph Young, author of Descent, the History of an American Idea, professor of history at Temple University. It's, it's been a pleasure. Um, and I'm looking forward to reading the book. I ordered it. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to reading it. Right, I'll give you a test of 50 questions. <laughs> yes, I'll try, do my best to memorize the answers. All right, thank okay. you for joining us. Well, thank you for that. Thanks to Ralph Young for joining us on CHQ&A today and to guest interviewer John Marino. Our producer for this episode was Thomas Mitchell. A version of this program will also air as Chautauqua Chronicles on WRFA 107.9 FM, listener-supported radio in Jamestown, New York. CHQ&A is a production of Chautauqua Institution, recorded in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A.